Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team welcome welcome to the brett boone podcast explore the mind of mlb all-star silver slugger and gold glove winner brett boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports now up to bat brett boone the other part of it was what to do with that record how to recognize it you know when pete rose got the base hit and became the all-time hit king we knew when that was going to happen that that would be the record. There, he got the hit. That's the moment. Um, Henry Aaron broke the Babe's record. He hit number 715. There it is. He's the new home run king. Um, Barry Bond later on broke, broke uh, Aaron's record. This record was a little different than that. In, in effect, if he showed up and he was healthy, <laughs> he showed up at the ballpark and was in the lineup, that's the record. I went on the David Letterman show. He was in the Ed Sullivan Theater during batting practice that night. And the idea was that he'd say, we're taping the show before the game, but it's going to be on after the game. He's broken the record when people see this show. So maybe you could tell us what you'll say just to give our viewers a little flavor about what it was like uh, when he broke the record. I said, sure, Dave, uh, happy to. And now the Orioles take the field for tonight's game. There goes Cal. He's out to shortstop. He's there now. And that's the record. <laughs> that's and the big that's the in, big call. In my earphone, I hear from the Ed Sullivan Theater, big laugh. So and, and you know, the producer and whatnot gave me this whole thing uh, how to do it and whatnot. It, it was something that their writers had dreamed up. And it worked. And and that was the problem, though, right? If he showed up and he was healthy, that's the another record. record. Yeah, another but record. Charles Steinberg with the Orioles, he was kind of a promotional genius. He came up, he says, nothing is a record until it's an official game. Look at the rule book. So you you finish the top of the fifth inning, if the home team's ahead, or you finish the fifth inning entirely, if the visiting team's ahead, then it's the record. That becomes the record. So starting on the previous homestand, like a week and a half, maybe before uh, he was going to break the record, they, you know, when the, when the game was official, the first time they did it, Cal ran out to shortstop because the Orioles were behind. So it was at the end of the fifth inning. And they started playing this, this great music. And they put the rule from the rule book up on the scoreboard. You know, rule... Uh, 31C, and uh, 
the game becomes an official game, you know. And so you gave you time to read that. And then they unfurled the number. They had the banners up on the, the warehouse in right field for the new number. And, and then everybody cheered. And we all thought, this is so hokey. And look at Cal. He hates it. Cal is not happy about this. But then we saw the genius of it when we got home. And now he's just like a couple days away. That that is the moment. He created the moment of the record. And that's when the fans would, would start to cheer and salute Cal for the, getting the record. The night before, the number unfurled, and Cal has tied Garrick's record. And uh, uh, so, and then the night that he broke the record, and that, that was it. So a um, stroke of genius by, by Charles Steinberg. Uh, what people forget is that Cal was trying to accommodate everybody. It was an extraordinary time because... We were on these road trips and everybody wants autographs from Cal. You know, he's getting closer to the record all the time. And we're in Minnesota one night at the Metrodome. And 15 minutes after the game, Cal comes out of the dugout, back onto the field and starts signing autographs for the people who were still there. Now, the next night he did it again. And by the third night, a lot of people had heard he was doing this. And now there was a whole line of people and he stood out there until he signed for every single one of those people. And he did that in every road ballpark up until he got the record. And he said that, uh, after the fact he said that, his wife had told him, says, I hope, sweetheart, I know you're so focused on the game that you always just focus on the game and nothing more. But I hope, my hope for you is that you'll allow yourself to enjoy this, all the hard work and now being saluted for being so reliable and all the hard work you've put in. So that was Cal's way of trying to soak it all in to share those moments with all those fans that were coming out who wanted to see him play because teams were getting bigger crowds in their ballparks because they wanted to see Cal so close to getting that record. So by the time that we got to the, the night where he broke the record, Cal had hardly had any sleep for, for days. He was still getting up. The team was home. He was getting up at the crack of dawn, having breakfast with his kids, driving the kids to school <laughs> and, you know, then getting to the ballpark early and uh, doing all the interviews and, and doing all of his pregame work. And what nobody knew was that by the time that that record setting game came around, he woke up with a fever. Cal, he, I don't know if he had a, you know, a cold or a little bit of the flu or what, what it was, but he was sick. And uh, he, he should have been in bed probably. And, and yet he's getting there and doing all the stuff that was being asked of him. Uh, so now the fans held their own. He had told the, the Orioles, no celebration during the game. That's not who I am. It's, it shows no respect for the game. After the game's over, you want to have some ceremony? Great. I'm all in. Not during the game. And that's what was so cool about the whole night. The, the banner unfurls, the crowd goes nuts, and they never stopped going nuts. And the cheering was unending. And Cal kept coming up out of the dugout. It's very poignant now when you see it afterward on, on tape, knowing that he was sick, that he had a fever. And he'd come out, he'd tap his heart, and, you know, thank you so much. and I, I appreciate it. And uh, Bobby Bonilla and Rafael Palmero, his teammates, came and said, Cal, you need to, he'd come out of the dugout three different times now. 
to acknowledge the fans and the, the cheering never stopped. Uh, you need to go do a lap around the, the, the warning track to acknowledge it. Over with. <laughs> yeah. Or we'll never get the game started again. And Cal said, I couldn't, I won't make it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm too sick. I, so, so finally they pushed him out of the dugout and you'll see that, you know, when you look at the tapes, that's what they did. There they were. They pushed him out of the dugout and sent him on his way. And the fans, 50,000 fans, held their own impromptu celebration during the game with Cal. It was not planned. Uh, there were no flyers that were handed out before the game. Here's what we're going to do when it becomes official. They just did that. And that ovation went on for, what, 15, 20 minutes? Uh, it may be the longest sustained standing ovation in the history of sports or maybe just the history of the world i don't know and uh, and it was the fans and cal celebrating together and uh, and, and uh, probably the most pointed that brought a tear to my eye cal got as he's running around the field he goes past the oriole bullpen and elrod hendricks is the bullpen coach cal had known elrod since he was a little kid you know because cal grew up his dad was a minor league manager and a coach and whatnot. And Cal in the summertime, he'd go be with his dad around all these minor. Cal saw all these big leaguers before they got to the big leagues. And he'd shag and, and uh, he'd run errands in the clubhouse and whatnot. He knew them all, including Elrod. He'd known Elrod since he was 10 years old uh, or, or younger. So Elrod kind of reaches over the wall and they exchange uh, uh, not just a high five, but a, uh, a, a moment. And, uh, and and that was so cool because uh, Elrod looked at Cal almost uh, like he was his own son by extension, you know. And uh, so it was, a, it was a Baltimore thing because Cal was a Baltimorean. And uh, so those were all things that made that whole thing special. And then we go on the road to Cleveland. Cleveland needs a win to clinch a division title for the first time since 1954, the next game. And, uh, and so the, and Cleveland had a guy named Eddie Murray who was on that team. And they, they had a ceremony before the game where Cal and Eddie got together because Eddie Murray is the guy that Cal always talked about when Cal got to the big leagues and it was clear he was going to be a star. He won the uh, rookie of the year award as a, uh, in 82 as a rookie. And, uh, Eddie said to him, listen, you're hitting third. I'm hitting fourth. There's a responsibility that goes with that. That means you're one of the key guys to this club and this lineup. You've got to get your rest. You've got to eat well. You've got to take care of yourself and be ready to play every single day. Because any day that you don't play is a letdown to everybody in this room, to all of your teammates. Well, uh, Cal took those words to heart more than anybody's ever taken any kind of words to heart and he played every day for what 16 years after uh, that. it's 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 unbelievable i i'm telling you when i was a kid i was i was that way i was hey i play every day i never take a day off i went round and round early in my career with davy johnson and then he said all right booney what do you want i said i play every day davy and he let me go about 150 games and he came to me in my locker one day he goes how you feeling? And I was fried. I was struggling. I, I needed a day off so bad. And he said, uh, wouldn't need a day off, would you? 
And I looked at him. Thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I said, I'm no, I'm no Cal Ripken. I'm no Cal Ripken. Well, you but know, John, uh, you've, there, was a, there was a moment in Minnesota where, and Kirby Puckett and Cal and Eddie Murray, they were all good buddies. And they'd go to each other's um, charity events in the offseason. Uh, Kirby would have some kind of a pool tournament to raise money for a cause in Minnesota. And Cal and Eddie would both go to that. And Cal would have some event. And Eddie would have an event. Kirby would come from out of town to go to those events. So they all knew each other well. And they were all good friends. And um, Kirby hits a double at the Metrodome. So he's in second. He's talking with Cal. And he says, Rip, how you doing, man? He says, oh. He says, you look, you, look, uh, you look a little tired. Are you tired? Are you worn out? He says, I have to tell you, I, I admit to you, I, I'm really dragging, man. I'm, I, we, we got here at 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we've been on the road for 10 days or whatever, and I'm, I am dragging. He says, well, look at the bright side. Just five more years, and you can take a day off. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, literally. It's, he it's had it added up. Yeah. You, you only have 800 more games, and then you just start taking days off. So. And they laughed about it, but uh, but Cal did. There were many times where he played through injury, and he was a fast healer. Uh, and the, the, the streak could have ended before it ever started. The day after opening day in 83 at uh, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, the day after opening day, they'd always go down to Annapolis and play the Naval Academy baseball team. And the whole team would always go down because it was the Naval Academy. Well, Cal got roughed up trying to complete a double play at second base. And when the game was over, his, his right ankle blew up. It was like twice normal size. And he was on crutches. He left the ballpark on crutches. And the next day he was still on crutches. And they said, well, don't even go to Annapolis. You're not, it's an exhibition game. <laughs> you stay off your feet and, uh, you know, ice it and do, do all that kind of stuff. And then the next day, the swelling had disappeared and Cal played. But if the day after opening day had been a game day, no way he would have played. He was on crutches. So, and at that point, the the streak was only about what a hundred, hundred something games. But uh, so he may have still had the long streak after that, but it would have been another year later before he would have broken the record. But uh, anyway, so that was kind of cool. And uh, I learned a lot about the game from Cal because he studied so much. He's the only guy I ever saw where the catcher was having an argument with the pitcher about the pitch to throw. And Cal, of course, always knew what the signs were because the other infielders looked to Cal to to find out what what they should do. So he'd have a little sign that he'd clue them into what was going on. So now uh, the pitcher wanted to throw this, Hoyles, the catcher wanted to throw that. And then, they look at Cal and says, Hoyle says, what do you think, Cal? He says, what do you mean, what do I think? He says, well, what should we throw him here? And Cal said, uh, well, I think because of this and because of that, you should throw him this. He says, all right. So can you just keep doing that? And uh, Cal says, doing what? He says, calling the pitches? He says, you mean from shortstop? He says, yeah. He says, you mean for the rest of the inning? He says, no, just from now on. So, so that is what they did. And it went on for a couple of weeks where he's calling the pitchers from shortstop. And finally, Johnny Oates, the manager, he, 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 he sees this, he sees that, he sees this. And he puts it together, what's going on. 
And Cal comes in, he says, listen, I see what you're doing. And, and I don't mind that you're doing that, but I'm the manager. If that's going to happen, you have to tell me and let me sign off on it. And, and, and it's fine with me. But if I saw it, those guys over there, they're going to see it at some point. Right, right. And when I see that that's, that they're, that they're seeing it, that'll be the end of it. And so they, they had that agreement. But uh, so there, Cal was a guy who commanded a lot of respect in that clubhouse, as you might imagine. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. You had, I mean, you've been a part of so many historic things, starting with, like you said, 74 was your first year. A's win the World Series, the Cal streak, the years of Dusty Baker, the Barry Bonds years, which I played through too and watched in my eyes, the, the greatest ever. And no one I've seen is even close. You were up close and personal for all that. Uh, you called the single season record, the all-time record. Uh, Bochi years in the World Series, 10, 12, and 14. Three rings and three parades. Uh, going into the Hall of Fame in 2010. You've had all these unbelievable things happen to you. Unbelievable calls. Is there anything, if I said, John Miller... Can you just give me a couple of the biggest moments of, of your broadcasting career? Can you even narrow it down to a couple or you just, there's too many to count? Well, uh, I mean, you know, and I don't look at it that way. I look at it as to, uh, uh, on a nightly basis, was I any good tonight or where was I not good? Uh, the great thing about baseball is the next night you can do better. You know, if you're doing football and you didn't like your broadcast, you have to wait a whole week before you get a chance to do better. Baseball, uh, and, and, and you say, well, you say to yourself, well, uh, and it may be similar to being a player where you, you think, I wasn't good on this, and I got to be more focused when that happens. And and then you make that a point the next night to, to, to make sure you're on top of it. But uh, uh, for me, one of the most extraordinary things I saw, and all those moments, and I savored them, Although I will, I, I make a joke out of it, but like if a guy's got a no hitter, let's say, and I've done it, I've done a few no hitters. Uh, I, it's too stressful. You know, all of a sudden you're not just broadcasting the game anymore. Uh, this is history in the making. Uh, you've got to have some things at your fingertips to, uh, to you know, get the context right. And when's the last one? Uh, when's the last time the Giants had one? You know, so on and so forth. All of a sudden, it's it's pressure. I don't want that. I just want a good game uh, with some great moments. And uh, uh, so I joke about it, but at the same time, uh, that's that's actually true. Uh, and and I loved all of those no hitters. Uh, Matt Cain's perfect game. Uh, what a night that was! And I'll never forget the last hitter of the game was uh, was Castro, Jason Castro, who is from the East Bay. He's, he grew up a Giants fan from Castro Valley. And his mom and dad came up into the booth with me and Dwayne Kuyper. Mike Kruko had the, the night off, so I'm on TV with Kuyper for that game. And now, he's not in the lineup. Well, we remember 
in his major league debut, he hit his first home run against Matt Cain in Houston. And we were asking his parents, is, is something wrong with, with him? How come he's not in the lineup? He got his first home run against Kane. Why is he not in there? He says, well, that's the question we asked him. And he's is just as clueless as, as you are. He doesn't know. And he's not that happy about it. And the Astros, you know, they were a young team at that time and not a good team. They were in that rebuilding where they were losing 100 games a year still. Uh, but now what happens, Kane has re- retired the first 26 guys. It's the ninth inning. He needs one out more. And who comes up out of the dugout? Jason Castro. And we're like, Kipe and I look at each other. We're like, uh-oh. <laughs> now? Now he's going to come up? And uh, so he ends up hitting a ground ball down the third base side. And uh, Joaquin Arias plays the ball. And and he almost he, he stumbled a little bit. The ball took a little funny hop on him. But he got the throw off and, and got the out. Kane later said, when that ball got hit, you know, because Castro's a left-handed hitter, it was one of those swings where he thought from the pitcher's mound, oh, hell, it's going to be one of those little ground balls right along the third baseline that goes down the left field line for an extra base hit. And he thought the perfect game was over. And But from his angle, he, he didn't see that it was actually gettable for Arias, and he did get it. And I think he was shaded a little bit toward the line, even with the left-handed hitter up there. Uh, maybe he saw what was happening and, and anticipated it, whatever it was. So Kane got the uh, the perfect game. But uh, So sometimes there are little stories behind the stories that, that you think about. And uh, uh, But the Giants had a no-hitter every year there. That was the fourth year in a row that a Giant pitcher had pitched a no-hitter. Uh, uh, Jonathan Sanchez in 09 uh, pitched one. And for me, it was not a perfect game. He allowed one base runner, and that was an error, a ground ball to third uh, to Juan Uribe that Uribe had played a 1,000 times in his career. No problem. And he booted it. And that it was the only base runner. Now, for me, he didn't pitch a perfect game. He pitched better than a perfect game. He got 28 guys out. Isn't that better than a perfect game that you got 27 guys out? Uh, so I think that's there's a little unfairness there to uh, categorizing what's perfect and what isn't. Uh, he was even a little better than perfect in that one. Uh, Linskin pitched a no-hitter just before the All-Star break uh, in uh, 2010, and then he pitched another one the next year. And then Kane had the perfect game in, in 2012. So the Giants had some pretty good pitching in that era when they were winning those World Series. And Tim Linskin, just watching him emerge – as a guy that everybody thought was too small, you know, the, the Giants had the 10th pick in the draft and nine teams passed on him. And most of those nine teams got a lot of flack from their fans for picking the guy that they picked and not Tim Lincecum because Lincecum was the real deal. Uh, and his, he was kind of a shooting star. He flamed out early, which maybe that was inevitable with his size, but, uh, Man, he was so fun to watch, and Giants fans adore him to this day. And they they, they don't call him Linscom; they call him Timmy, and uh, like he was, uh, like they watch him grow up into an adult. And uh, so, uh, so all of those things have, have been so much fun, and uh, to watch the Giants have that parade in 2010, winning their first World Series in San Francisco. There was one guy in that parade 
who was wearing a Giants World Series ring. And that was Willie Mays, who had been a star player the last time the Giants had won a World Series as the New York Giants in 1954. And Willie wore that World Series ring in that parade that day. Uh, the estimates were that there were a million people lining the streets of San Francisco. And, and they cheered. It was like the, the ovation given to Cal the night he broke Gehrig's record, except it was all through the streets of San Francisco. When we finally got to City Hall, uh, we got out of the, 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 the cars that we were in, the vintage cars, the convertibles, and went into the City Hall where it was quiet. And my ears were ringing because it was this constant ovation. And I, I don't know if my hearing has ever come back from that, uh, much less than they had two more of those kind of parades. Uh, it, it was just so much fun and so cool. And they had those guys, they had four relief pitchers. Yeah, felt Javier Lopez, the left-handers, Sergio Romo and Santiago Casilla, four key high leverage late inning relievers that were there for all three of those. And those guys were all good and they had long careers and they were good in the regular season to help them get to the postseason. But they were all four better in the postseason. I felt even more than the rest. Uh, he gave up a run, maybe his first postseason appearance as a giant, never allowed another run in all those postseasons after that. So, uh, you know, Romo, Ended up getting the final out in 2012. He, he shocked Miguel Cabrera, maybe the best hitter on the planet, with a fastball, <laughs> an 87-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle. Last thing in the world he was looking for, and he never even got off a swing. Series over. Uh, the, uh, in 2010, uh, Brian Wilson was the closer, and he may have sacrificed his arm to help the Giants win in that postseason. Uh, you know, he was never really quite the same again. And in 2014, uh, Santiago Casilla ended up being the closer. There was always in a state of flux. Bruce Bochy, if whoever the closer was, was not getting it done, he might change in midseason. And uh, he was a, a master of manipulating the bullpen. But the way he would work that bullpen in the regular season had nothing to do with the way he worked it in the postseason. And that reminded me of Joe Torrey. The, remember when the the Yankees, and I remember, I think you you were at some of those. You worked some of those games on on, on television. Oh, uh, three, yeah, oh three, yeah, that's yeah. it. And, <laughs> Fish uh, out of water, didn't want to be there. I'll do there. You pay me <laughs> enough. <laughs> but we, uh, Tory had those guys. He had the great Mariano Rivera, yeah. the best ever. Uh, and he, but he always had several other guys. Jeff Nelson was one of those guys. Uh, Mike Stanton, a left-hander, he was one of those guys. Romero Mendoza, and those guys, it was the same thing. They were always all better in the postseason than they'd been in the regular season. Kind of like Derek Jeter in that way. But he used the bullpen differently in the postseason. The Yankees would come from behind in some of those games because I worked all those games with Joe. Uh, we did the World Series every year, uh, the two of us, maybe for 13 years on ESPN Radio. And... And then Bochi had his big time to shine under those bright lights. And he manipulated the bullpen brilliantly and in an entirely different way. Uh, he brought Affeld into a, a game in Philadelphia 
in 2010, the clinching game, game six, he brought him in in the third inning. Affel was a seventh, eighth, ninth inning guy. He brought him in in the third. And uh, and he did that regularly. In the, the final clinching game seven in 2014, Tim Hudson made the start. And he brought Affel into that game in the third inning. Uh, same thing. So it was all about having the lead and then figuring out a way to manipulate the bullpen to hold that lead, not take it for granted that you were going to score again. And in that 2014 game seven, they did not score again. Uh, in 2010 in Philadelphia, in that clinching game, which everybody, the whole country thought the Phillies were going to win. They had just been to the world series two years in a row. And now they, they needed two wins and they were home for both games. But he went to his bullpen in the third. The Phillies never scored again in a tie game. And then Juan Uribe hit an opposite field home run, maybe the seventh or eighth inning, to break the tie. And that was it. And Brian Wilson came in and got the, the final uh, five outs or whatever. Ended up getting through a bases-loaded jam in the ninth inning, striking out uh, Ryan Howard. And that was it. So uh, manipulating those bullpens... And I put Tory and Bochi in what I've seen into a separate category and famous last words of managers in those postseason series. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And they said, well, I don't think it's complicated. It's because we did it that way all year long. That's what got us here. Why would I change that now? Well, that's not what Joe Torrey's saying. That's not what Bruce Bochi's saying. They're doing something entirely different. And, uh, and I saw so many managers that, and it's hard to argue with that, right? It got them there. That's how you, that's how we did it. That's how we made it here. Why would I change down? Well, it's, it's a different animal, these postseason games. And there's this sense of urgency that doesn't exist in the regular season where there's always another game. There's always another week, but these postseason series, they can turn on just this game. And, uh, so anyway, so uh, I, I remember in 2015, uh, you know, there's a tradition in baseball, the broadcasters, they get a World Series ring, which I don't know why that is or how it started, but I'm glad they did. It's exciting to get a World Series ring. And so I would always wear that World Series ring, they, you know, opening day or whatever, they have the ring ceremony before the game. And, and I would wear it for two, three weeks or whatever, because People in the neighborhood, people at the ballpark, everybody wants to see it. So I thought, well, I'll wear it, and then people can see it. And I can show it to everybody. But I always felt embarrassed wearing it because I had nothing to do with it. It was my good fortune as a broadcaster that I happened to be there with all these great players who won the whole thing. It's just a lucky break for me. Um, so when I put the ring away, I put it in the safe or whatever, I'm not wearing it. And the first night I don't wear it at the ballpark, I see Bochi and he says, where's your ring? How come you're not wearing it? And I told him, I said, well, I, like I just said, I, I feel embarrassed wearing it because I didn't do anything to win any games. He says, well, I didn't do anything to win a game. I said, what, what are you talking about? You're the manager. You, you made the pinch hitting uh, assignments. You put the bun on. You brought in the relievers at the right time and, and whatnot. You had everything to do with it. He says, no, no. I brought in guys in a good spot for them, maybe. 
but we won because they executed. They succeeded. It's not given you bring a guy in that he's going to get that guy out. He might give up a hit. It might not even be his fault. He might break the guy's bat and a little flare falls in. The whole thing gets turned around. Uh, and I remember thinking, wow, that is who Bochi is. Because he meant what he said. And I think the players respond to that with Bochi. He gives the players credit for the whole thing. And he demands a, a level of professionalism. And he demands that you play hard. And he does try to put you in a, the best spot for you to succeed. But if you succeed, it was all on you because you succeeded and you get the credit. And I think guys responded to that and they played extra hard for him because of that. John Miller, this is, this has been a lot of fun, a lot of great story. It's remarkable because as hitters, we remember certain, certain games, certain counts. Yeah. I hit a home run and it was a three, two count. It was off this pitcher. We can remember stuff like that, but the way you wreck you, you can replay these games. It's really cool to hear, uh, man, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on the Boone podcast, hall of famer, John Miller. Uh, we did it for a couple hours. For those out there listening to the Boone podcast, I hope you had a good time listening. And we'll see you next time. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 